to come to this side. On, I think it was Thursday, the sound is sounding a little weird, huh? On Thursday this last week at, at my kid's school, they had this thing called the egg drop. Did any of you ever do that at some part of a camp or something where you have to build a contraption to keep an egg alive after like a, in this instance, before they've done like slingshots, they would make this big old slingshot and it never worked and they started just throwing the eggs and, and it was kind of underwhelming, but this time they decided to go all out and what they did is they rented, uh, where's Phil at? Yeah, so what's, that's a, it's called a cherry picker, right? It's called a what? Okay, so Phil was operating it and you raised up the platform, so it's kind of like a crane with a platform and you raised it up probably how high off the ground? 30 feet off the ground. And so all these, the teachers were up there with the kids' contraptions. And the kids had worked so hard, some of them had boxes with marshmallows and the egg trapped inside, and some of them had parachutes, and they had all these random things. But the thing that struck me, it's just an egg, right? But the thing that struck me was that when someone's egg would drop that 30 feet, and the kid would run out there and collect it up and take a look at it, Imagine their excitement and their thrill when they realized, it's alive! My egg made it! Like they would literally run like cheering back to the group because their egg survived the fall. And I was like, that's an egg. This is Easter. Like, who's been to the Holy Land? Who's been to, to Israel and been able to walk the path that Jesus walked? Oh my. I'm jealous of you. A friend of mine went, I think I was in high school, a friend of mine went, and he brought back photos. And as I was looking through them, he showed me the one, finally, we came to the photo of the tomb where they believed Jesus was laid. And can I tell you something really embarrassing? I looked at the photo, and this thought hit me as if it was the first time it was hitting me. That tomb is empty. It's open. There's no one in there. Yeah, and it was like that light bulb came on. And you're like, hello. <laughs> That's... But it just hit me on a new level that that tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And my question for you as we transition in our morning is, will you just take a moment and ask, why did you come here this morning? Is it because it's Easter and that's one of the obligatory Sundays that you must come attend a Sunday morning service? Is it because you come here every Sunday? Is it because it's your job, which you love? This is me dressing down, by the way. Um, but will you take a moment and just think about what brought you through these doors this morning? What are you hoping that the risen Savior can do in your life, in your family, in your relationships today? What are you wondering if God is able to do in your situation, in your work, in your life? Will you think about that for a moment? What are you wondering if God has the power to do? And as you think about that, I'm going to invite our friend Josh up. He's going to read the passage of Scripture. Um, you're going to have to listen closely because I'm not letting him, I'm not taking all this off just for a minute. Um, so he's going to project, but he's going to read Luke chapter 24. If you'd like to read along, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles or scroll in your Bibles, feel free to do that. Otherwise, just, just reflect on what's going on in this story. And what you're wondering 
if Jesus is able to meet you in this morning. Stay there for one second, Betts. So, check out her Easter, what do you call it? Her Easter best. Isn't that awesome? I love it. (laughs) That's amazing, isn't it? Oh, wow. Happy Easter. There's some seats up here in the front that nobody will come sit in. I'm just letting you know that they're, that they're there. Hey, so welcome to Coastlands. If you're, it's your first time here, then, well, we're glad everybody's here, but welcome if it's your first time here. One of the things that we insist on doing and being, even on holy days like Easter, is having fun. And so if you come in here hoping for something really reverent, there's a few people that will give that to you. But we insist on celebrating and having fun because we follow a Jesus that is love and life and goodness, and we want that to come out through our being in this group. So my name is Chris. If I haven't introduced myself yet, I work here, and I love it. And I have some things to tell you um, before we jump into our message. So we're going through a series this yeah, the last like four weeks, five weeks, we've been going through the Lord's Prayer. And we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer specifically at what it shows us about what the Father is like. We've realized that some people have this understanding that Jesus is kind of like the cool, nice, friendly, want to hang out with part of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit's kind of the mysterious one. And the Father is the one that you kind of get in trouble by. But maybe there's not more to the Father than that. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer to say, what does Jesus want to show us about his Father? And how does he show us that through the Lord's Prayer? And we're actually going to continue on with that theme this morning, even though it's Easter. And it'll be interesting to see how it ties together. Okay, if it ties together. I'm going to do my best. Um, We have a thing coming up for anybody that's interested. If I say the word contemplative retreat, some of you will start to fall asleep immediately. But if I say an opportunity to come away for a weekend and experience in a greater capacity the love of God in your heart, not just in your head, then some of you might be excited about that. And that's what we have coming up on April 8th and 9th, a time to get together with a friend of mine who, Leslie, you know him, Jeff Pratt, good guy, bad guy, Um, a friend of mine that's coming in. And the whole point of the weekend is to take time away to say, is there a sense in which we have maybe lost an awareness of God's profound, relentless love for us. And how do we capture that and hold on to it day by day? So if you're interested in that, that's April 8th and 9th, you can talk to me and I will sign you up. It's really expensive. It's $25 a person. And it's not an overnight thing. So I hope you'll join us for that. What else was I going to say? I can't think straight wearing this jacket. I feel so, like... I feel so Eastered. No, I'm going to leave it on for a minute. I'm going to leave it on. This is Easter. Come on. All right, I might take it off in a few minutes. Will you join me in prayer again? Father, today is the day 2,000-something years ago, 
that your Son broke free from the grave and begin to establish in a more profound way your kingdom, rule, and reign on earth. Jesus, we will never understand what you went through. We will never understand the pain that you experienced on the dark side of that day. And we will never, actually, let me rephrase that. One day we will understand the joy you experienced on the other side. This morning, would you give us a tiny taste of that joy as much as our hearts can handle? Would you help us to open ourselves, to sense, to see just a little glimpse of the exuberance, the profound pleasure and delight that you experienced and embodied when you broke free from the grave and you put death to death. Pour that out in our hearts this morning in a way that only you can. For your kingdom's sake we pray. Amen. So hopefully you've had a few minutes to think about why you're here and what you're hoping God will meet you in. My job here is just to talk about the Bible. Jesus does the heavy lifting in this church, and the Holy Spirit will be the one to come and meet you in whatever you're asking. That's my prayer. And so what we do is we look at the Word, and we trust that the Holy Spirit speaks beyond and through anything that I have to say and what other people share here. What we're going to do before we jump in, I'm going to bring some of you up to speed. If it's your first time here, I'm going to show you kind of really quickly what we've been doing in the Lord's Prayer. And so Brett's going to put the whole prayer up here. We've been talking through the Lord's Prayer, and we've realized that, wow, this thing is loaded. This thing is so chock full of good stuff. And Jesus, he begins by telling us, while we're in our prayer closet, our storeroom, our pantry, all alone, he says, pray this, our Father. Because Jesus wants us to remember, even when we're all alone, that we're part of a family, we're part of something bigger, and that we have a daddy, an Abba, that we can come to and come before that knows our every need. And he says, pray that. Start off by centering yourself in that awareness that you have this Abba in this family that you're a part of. He says that this Abba is in heaven. So this daddy has this perspective that we don't have. And he says, when you pray these things, remember that this father knows what's coming. That's right, dada. You know the prayer, don't you? <laughs> that was really perfect. We scripted that. We worked on that all night last night. He says, this daddy is in heaven. This daddy isn't limited to our perspective. This daddy sees what's coming around the corner, anticipates it, and even can maneuver our lives to handle it. It says, hallowed be your name, which is another way of saying reveal who you are. Show us that you're different from all the other gods. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying this place, this earth, this world, to quote someone else, is where the action is. This is not just something about God removing us and taking us to some far off place. This is about the life and goodness of God flooding our lives and out of our lives into this very world and our jobs, our relationships, our teaching, our farming, our whatever we're doing. He says, give us this day our fresh bread because this is a God that has something fresh, new, good for us every single day. Ask for that. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we talked about how forgiveness is the thing that opens the gateway to the life of God pouring through our lives and healing us and making us whole. 
we had a really powerful time on Friday night of sharing and expression and prayer and ministry. We saw God do some wonderful, wonderful things as people had the courage to forgive themselves and others and let that go. The word forgive Jesus uses literally to send away, to just send away those debts that we hold other people in. And that brings us to these last three lines. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We could almost stop there and just soak in those words, couldn't we? Some of you are like, please, Jesus, no. And do not bring us to the time of trial. Yeah. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So this morning, I, as I was at the sunrise service, there was worship, there was a message, and I found it interesting, and it, it didn't surprise me. I'm trying to be careful with my words. I know you would say, don't worry, just share your heart. Okay. Somebody playing the xylophone back there? That's awesome. How many of you have noticed that with Easter and the talk of Good Friday, I've already offended somebody, so I may as well just keep it going. Has anybody else noticed that one of the main themes that gets brought up over Easter and especially around Good Friday is the theme of sin and forgiveness and being cleansed of our wickedness and our brokenness and is anybody else kind of feeling that? Sin just gets brought up so much. And I think that sin is super important to talk about because it's really the thing that breaks our relationships. It damages ourselves. It damages others. We, we often in the church talk about sin as if it's just this breaking of a law or, um, you know, breaking a rule. But sin is much more profound than that. It's really relational rift. And it's the process of breaking down everything that's good. And so we need to talk about that. We need to acknowledge that Jesus did something about sin on the cross and he said, it is finished. Sin is done. But there's another side of the cross, something Jesus did that I feel like is rarely talked about. And yet I feel like this thing is the thing that if we could start to talk about this and address it and realize that Jesus already has, then the church would look way different than it does today. Our lives, our families, our relationships would look way different than they do today. Do not bring us to the time of trial. Think for a minute about the nature of a trial. So Jesus himself, during the Holy Week, he found himself at about, if I'm calculating correctly, Four different trials. He found himself being tried by the high priest. He found himself on trial before Pilate. Pilate gets sick of him. Jesus doesn't do what Pilate wants. And so Pilate sends him off to Herod. Then Herod laughs at him and sends him back to Pilate. Four trials in one day. And Jesus is saying, pray that you will not be brought into the time of trial. By the way, I think that Jesus teaching the disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer. You know what I think he was doing? 
He was preparing them to pray for the events of Holy Week. That the Lord's Prayer really overlays and describes everything that goes on and went on during the Holy Week. Jesus knows intimately about trial. But let me say something about trial real quick. What does there need to be in order for a trial to exist? It starts with an A, and it's something that we hear in our minds and hearts every day. For a trial to exist, it means that there is some form of accusation coming at somebody. Doesn't it? For a trial to exist, it means that there's some form of accusation coming at us from somewhere. How many of you have ever had this thought come to your mind? I am so not worthy. I am so not lovable. I am so not valued. I am so not capable. I am not, how about this one? I am not enough. Anybody ever had that? Just ping, just kind of bounce to the front of your mind from somewhere? I am not. What are some of the other I am nots that we hear? Is it okay if we just kind of open this up for a minute? Sometimes we do that at Coastlands, just to make sure everybody's awake and to hear what everybody has to say. But just give me one word. It doesn't have to be for you, but, but how would you, what's a way we could finish that sentence? What are the... What's an accusation that often comes at us as we walk with Jesus? I am not what? Go ahead and say the word out loud. I am not available. I am not good. I am not worthy. What else? I am not loved. I am not sufficient. I am not accepted. That's all, right? How long could this go on if we were to let it? And I think that's the point. You don't need to say it, but how many of you, as soon as I say it, you already know what your I am not is. Raise your hand. But the second I say it, your I am not just comes to the front of your mind. An I am not statement is an accusation against your worth. It's an accusation about your value or lack thereof. And that accusation comes in the form of this S word that Jesus came to deal with that isn't the word sin. And it's not another S word that you're thinking, I might be thinking. It is actually S-H. A. Scared some of you, didn't I? S-H-A-M-E. Shame. Who's had an experience where something happens to you and you could have just left it alone and let it be an experience, but there's a lie attached to it that you bring with you into every relationship, every interaction, every facet of life. You find that there's this thing hanging over you called shame that just sucks the life and vitality and goodness right out of you. It stops you from experiencing in your heart the goodness that your head knows God has for you. I am not. What if Jesus is saying, pray this, lead us not into accusations. Protect us from the I am nots that would plague our hearts and lives. 
see, Jesus, he knew about this dynamic. An accusation and an I am not, it does this to us. It says, now prove yourself. Think for a minute about the I am not statement you said. How many people do we see that they have this I am not and they spend most of their energy through their relationships, through their jobs, through the way they portray themselves to others, most of their energy is spent in trying to prove that I am not wrong. I am not this. I'm not capable. Well, I'm going to be the most capable person in the world. I am not competent. Oh, yeah? Watch this. I am not this. Oh, yeah? I'll show you. Because isn't that what an accusation says? Prove yourself. Show your value. And we have a lot of different ways we try to do that, don't we? We never try to do that through relationships with the opposite sex, though that's one that never happens. We never try to do that with our productivity and how much we can accomplish. We never try to do that with our intelligence, with how polished we are. We never try to do it with our, the size of our group of friends. But I'm sure there are some ways we do it somewhere out there, somehow. You see, what happens is these I am nots come into our lives, these accusations come into our lives, and they undergird for some of us everything we do, and they contaminate even our best intentions. Is it possible that Jesus has something to say to these I am nots? But rescue us from the evil one. Notice that these thoughts are linked, and that it doesn't just say, some translations say, rescue us from evil. The best translation, I believe, is from the evil one. And Revelation 12.10 tells us that the evil one, whatever you think about evil, the Bible seems to portray it as personal. Not just some vague, ambiguous force. It's more personal than that. And Jesus says, pray that you will be delivered from the evil one, who Revelation 12.10 tells us is the accuser, the job of evil is to accuse, to whisper into our ears, you are not. You are not. And then the next thing we know, shame comes flooding through our being. Is it possible that Jesus is saying, pray this, do not bring us in front of accusation, but rescue us from shame. Think about Jesus for a minute in light of this desire, drivenness to prove ourselves. In all four of Jesus' trials, you know what they were basically saying to him? They were saying, prove yourself. Pilate, are you really the king of the Jews? He says, those are your words, not mine. Herod, it says, wants Jesus to show him a sign. It says that Herod was glad to see Jesus because he wanted Jesus to show him a sign. Jesus shows up and you know what he does? He doesn't even say a word says that Jesus doesn't respond. Jesus refuses to play the prove-yourself game according to the way the world demands. Do we refuse to play the prove-yourself game the way the world demands, or do we get slurped right up into it? And what does Jesus have to say to that? I only wrote about six pages of notes for this morning. Um... I kind of realized I had a lot to say. I'm not going to give you all of it. But let us go back to this for a minute. How many of you have noticed another word for this word trial, bring us not to the time of trial, is that word temptation. How many of you know the Lord's Prayer is saying that? Lead us not into temptation. Yeah. 
Now, one of the things that we need to clarify is that that has nothing to do with God. And it's kind of interesting that we would even pray, God, lead us not into temptation. Because other places in Scripture says God will never tempt us to sin. That's James 1.13, I believe. What I've noticed in my life, and maybe you've noticed this in yours, the area of greatest temptation flows out of my greatest area of shame. Would anybody else agree with that? If my I am not is I am not valuable, you know what I find myself doing often? Trying to do things in such a way where I put so much of myself out there that if I can just feel a tiny sliver of value, then I can kind of hold myself together for one more day. I'm sure I'm the only one, right? This is a cycle that the enemy wants to get us into. This cycle of accusation, I am not, shame, temptation. And then guess what happens when you give in to that temptation? The shame goes away, right? Isn't that what happens? You give in the temptation, the shame is gone. And you feel valuable. Okay, you're not even listening. Is there a way, does Jesus have a way to break us free from that cycle? I know. We love having kids in here, by the way. Hmm. I am not. So there's a really interesting story. How many of you would agree that in your experience, shame tries to take your legs out from under you? That shame tries to just kind of cut you off at the knees, and you experience that on an almost daily basis. This lie, I am not. You know in John chapter 18, Jesus is betrayed by Judas, Are you familiar with the story? You can open up there if you'd like. But in John chapter 18, Judas is betraying Jesus, and Jesus goes out to meet these 600 soldiers, 600 trained military men. And they come out against Jesus. All right, I'm not going to really do this because it could go wrong, but these 600 soldiers come out to meet Jesus, and Jesus goes to them, and he says, Who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember what happens next? He says, in English, our Bibles often translate it, I am he. But in Greek, it should just be translated, I am. Have you ever heard those two words put together before? I am, Jesus responds. And this enemy that had come out to accuse and capture Jesus, you know what happens to this enemy? It literally says that they, 600 soldiers, imagine this, these 600 soldiers drew back and fell to the ground. Now imagine 600 professional trained soldiers doing that. Can we have some volunteers? How many of you do we have in this room? 600 trained soldiers literally having their legs taken out from under them 
by the power of Jesus' statement, I am. Shame thinks it has the power to take our legs out from under us. Jesus' I am has the power to take shame's legs out from under it. And I think that's one of the things that we miss about Easter that our lives desperately need to grab a hold of. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read this to you. In Hebrews chapter 12. I heard somebody say recently when they were, this was actually on Good Friday, and I, I'm curious to hear who else would, would echo this sentiment or this resonates with, but this person said on Good Friday that the reality of the cross and Jesus' sacrifice makes them feel guilty because Jesus did all of that for them. Raise your hand if you've ever had that thought or feeling cross your mind. That it makes you sometimes feel guilty. And isn't that because we don't feel worth it? Listen to the words for a moment of Hebrews chapter 12. If I can find it. It's on page 1428. It says, so then, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. So then, let's also run the race that is laid out in front of us, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Look around you for a minute. What an amazing group of people in this room. This is a cloud of witnesses. There's more to the cloud of witnesses than us, but we're included in that. Let's throw off any extra baggage, get rid of the sin, and I would add shame that trips us up, and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author or the beginning, and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. He endured the cross. Now this is the important part. Ignoring, some translations even have the word despising, the shame. Now we have to remember that Jesus is up there. It says that they cast lots for his clothing. And most of you know this, but how many paintings have you seen of Jesus on the cross and he's literally stark naked? We can't even paint it that way, can we? And yet it says that they cast lots for his clothing. They would wear four different kind of layers or different articles of clothing in that time. There were four soldiers, I believe. I don't remember how it worked out, but it worked out in Scripture so that all of his clothing was taken off of him. Jesus is up naked on the cross in front of everybody's eyes. And it says that he despised, he ignored the shame that the human race was heaping upon him. Now here's the part that really, really matters. For the sake, he did all this, for the sake of the joy that was set before him. Now we all have different images of what Jesus was experiencing on the cross, how he felt about it, what his willingness was. Can I 
I'm going to come back to this in a minute. Can I make a quick little side comment that is actually super, super important? Has anybody ever heard the teaching or the idea that the Father needed to kill Jesus in order to forgive and accept us? Do you know that people believe that? There are people that believe that the Father, some aspect of the Father's character, demanded that the Father kill Jesus in order to forgive us. Now, maybe I'm wording it in a way that's a little strong or maybe wording it different than you've heard, but if it's true in that plane of language, could that pose a problem for any of us? If the Holy Spirit loves us and Jesus loves us and the Father needs to be coerced into accepting us through the death of His Son? Now some of you guys, this might be a little bit of a paradigm shift and you're going to need to forget I said this and just kind of move on. What's that? Remember Men in Black? Little pshoo! <laughs> what if the reality is that the Father did not need to kill Jesus in order to accept us, but the Father was the one wooing Jesus to the cross because the Father knew that unless Jesus dealt with our sin and shame, we would never come back to the Father. Now, let me just make one more statement that I think relates to this, and then you can think about it later or not. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to pray, Your will be done on earth. Do you remember Jesus' response in the garden? He's with the disciples and he's telling them, hey, stay awake. He has three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. He says, stay here and pray so that you don't fall into temptation, so that you don't get sucked into this vortex of evil that I'm about to confront, this consuming tsunami of shame. You don't want to get sucked into that. They did anyways, didn't they? Peter did, didn't he? All of them did except for one who's there with Jesus as he's at the cross. And on that mountain, in that garden, Jesus prays, Father, I wish that you would take this cup from me, this cup of suffering, of me going to my death. And then he says what? But not my will but yours be done. The Father was longing for Jesus to come and to put to death our sin, our shame, not so that the Father could accept us, but so that we could accept Him. Like I said, you might need to think about that a little bit. I do. I believe it's in 2 Corinthians or Romans. It says that the Father was actually there with Jesus. It says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself on the cross. How many of you picture Jesus on the cross and the Father, long gone? But it says that God the Father was in Christ on the cross reconciling the world to himself. In John 16, 32 Jesus tells his disciples, all of you are going to betray me. All of you are going to betray me. But the Father is with me.
And Hebrews tells us that it was for joy, the joy of relationship with you, the joy of knowing that Jesus could set you free from this cycle of shame, the joy of knowing that you don't have to play the game of accusation, I am not, go prove myself. Jesus says, I have something to say to that. I will experience all of that and more so that you don't have to anymore. I've come to replace your I am not with a resounding I am. You don't believe me? You kind of believe me. You probably super believe me. Just seven more scriptures. I want to read to you out of John 14. If I can find John. It's one of the Gospels, right? There's so many John books in here. This is the John that's just plain old John. Oh, that does not sound right at all. This is the long, robust John. Listen to this for a minute. John chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. Uh, If you have your Bible, will you open up here and will you highlight this and will you underline it? And if you have your phone, will you scroll there or whatever it is and will you put a mark here? John chapter 14 Jesus speaking to his disciples about his death and resurrection, verses 19 and 20. He says, Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. At his resurrection when he reappeared to them. I lost my place. Oh, now here's the kicker. Because I live, you will live too. Now I know you all are alive in here, that's why you're here. I'm glad you're alive. But in Greek, this is a special word that Jesus uses for live. It's this word zoe. And this word zoe means life to the full, abundant life, life filling up to the brim and overflowing with goodness and joy and assurance. Jesus says, because I, Zoe, because I live, you will, Zoe, too. And he tells us why. On that day, the day of my resurrection, on that day, you will know. Since we're playing in the Greek sandbox for a minute, this word know is the same word that they use when they say Adam knew Eve and they had a baby. He knew her name, right? And a little bit more. This is not just knowing. This is profound, relational, intimate knowing that Jesus is describing here. You will know in that day. Now we need to listen to this closely. That I am. Those are powerful words. That I am in my Father. And you are in me, and I am in you. The resurrection does not only mean that Jesus came to wipe the slate clean and forgive us of the ways that we, you know, the time we jaywalked at one time, the time that you crossed the street and the don't walk sign was up. Jesus came to forgive you of that if you need forgiveness of that. 
But Jesus did not just come to forgive us for the rules that we broke the time that we took one extra granola bar at church that Sunday. Jesus didn't come just to forget about that, but Jesus came to heal us from the shame that undergirds every action that would cause us to try to prove ourselves or live in such a way that it cuts off the life of God. Jesus came to set us free from the way that we use substances to numb ourselves to our disappointment in the reality that we don't feel good enough. Jesus came to set us free from that. Jesus came to set us free from the angst that undergirds the drivenness in our business to say, hey, what if you actually did this out of delight not to prove yourself? Jesus came to set us free with all of that. On his resurrection day, he appeared to the disciples who were hiding in a locked room. He comes through the room somehow, through the wall, and he says, peace to you. He says, may your lives, may your hearts no longer be ruled by angst, by anxiety, by insecurity, by fear that you're not valuable, that you're not good enough, that you don't belong. He says, peace to you. Know that you belong to me, that I am in you, and you are in me, and we're both in the Father, that we're embraced, that we're valued, that we're loved, and I did that thing on the cross for the joy of your heart getting that, finally and fully one day. All right, just for fun, since I am giving myself two more minutes. One more minute, 45 seconds. Jesus appears to his disciples. This is after the passage that Josh read us. Jesus appears to his disciples. He goes for a walk with some of them and he tricks them. This is on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He tricks some of them. They don't recognize him and he's walking along with them. These were people that had walked with Jesus for years. The next thing they know, Jesus is pretending like he's going to walk on further. He's like, all right. See you later. Have fun in your depression. Enjoy. And they convince him to come along with them. And then Jesus does something really, really religious. He does something really, really sacred. He sits down with them. And he takes a piece of bread. And he breaks the bread and he gives them each a bite. And you know what it says happened the moment that they took a bite of that bread? Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Okay, that's great. One of the things that's fun about the Bible is if you want to know what something means, you have to go back to the first time something like that ever happened. Think about the very first time in the Bible that somebody took a bite of something and shared it with somebody else. Come on. What is it? It's that avocado, isn't it? That peach. I don't know if apples were kind of Near Eastern fruit or not, but isn't that interesting? The very first time someone takes a meal, takes a bite of something, and and then they share it with somebody else, The conditions in which they did that, the conditions of accusation, does God really have God's best for you? Is God really looking out for you? Is God holding out on you? Accusation. Lead us not into the accusations. 
And Adam and Eve say, well, maybe this will help us be like God. Maybe this will give us the assurance that we're looking for. And it says the next thing we find them doing is what? Hiding from God because they are ashamed, because they do not feel they are worthy to walk with this Creator. And Luke ends his story by saying this Creator sits down on the other side of death, which is what Adam and Eve brought into the world, Genesis tells us. This Creator sits down on the other side of death and He hands them a bite to eat and it says that their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. And the next thing they know, we see the reality of the kingdom, the power, and the glory washing over the world through their lives in healings, in deliverance, in miracles, in all of these radical things because there's this newfound Zoe life that they have eaten their way into by taking a bite of that bread and having their eyes open to recognize Jesus. If I wasn't wearing this jacket, that would give me goosebumps. Okay, I shall take that. So we need to end by going back to Hebrews 12. Anybody's I am not getting a little quieter? As the I am of Jesus resounds through your heart? You are in me, and I am is in you. This is when it's good to actually have these verses up on the screen. (laughs) I know some of you were thinking it, so I just said it. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The last part of Hebrews 12.2 says, He endured the cross, despising the shame, disregarding the shame, so that we could too. For the joy set before Him of trading our anxiety with His assurance, of trading our chaos, our desire to prove ourselves with His peace, For that joy, and then it says, and he sat down at the right hand of God's throne. That's where the kingdom operates from. Your kingdom come, for yours is the kingdom. Jesus says, oh, by the way, this kingdom and power and glory that lasts forever, this is our Father's kingdom. You're not just somebody on the fringe of this kingdom. You are a son in this kingdom. You are a daughter in this kingdom. You are an heir in this kingdom. And every single ounce of assurance and goodness and security and shalom that's available in this kingdom is available to you because I killed shame on the cross.
Jesus replaces our I am nots with his I am. And I want to read this last statement. I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget it. And then I couldn't remember it. And I'm glad I wrote it down. That's why I'm reading it. On the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus opened up for us a new way of living. A way of living in the kingdom where shame is unwelcome because we have been eternally embraced by a good Father, a loving Jesus, and a present Holy Spirit. Happy Easter, anyone? Jesus, may your I am Come in this moment and not just chip away at, but take out the knees of our I am nots. That all of the ways that we try to prove ourselves, all of the accusations that we face, all of the ways that we desire to be somebody and to show the world that we are somebody in the ways that don't bring us life and don't align with your kingdom, would you set us free from that? And would we embrace the I am that speaks to our hearts, you are worth it. You could almost say that, I'm coming back to you again for a minute. You could almost say that someone will only sacrifice for something to the extent that they value it. Wouldn't you agree? Someone will only sacrifice for something to the extent that they value it. Now, what does it say about you that God would submit himself to sinners and submit himself to evil to the point of death just so that you don't have to live in that shame and you can live life in the kingdom? So Jesus, show us what this means. Show us how this works. Do not bring us into accusation, but deliver us from shame. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. i
Please. 